I'm Daniela. Welcome to my podcast, because everyone has a story. The place to give ordinary people's stories the chance to be shared and preserved. Our stories become the language of connections. Let's enjoy it, connect and relate, because everyone has a story. Welcome, my guest, Cheryl I love. I am so impressed with Cheryl's energy, talents, and zest for life. She is an author, a physical therapist, a second-degree black belt in an ancient Japanese martial arts, a dancer from ballet to pole dancing. Yes, she competed twice on a pole dancing competition. A former chronic pain patient, a survivor, and the host of the Femininja Project podcast. She's sharing her story of how her challenges and trauma make her the reluctant ninja she is today. And I enjoy her story because I relate so much to her. I also recently got her first book, Forever Fit and Flexible, and got inspired to start taking Pilates classes, serious Pilates classes, and maybe soon I will learn martial arts as well. Because like Cheryl, I also believe that everyone can enjoy vibrant health and vitality at every stage of their life. So let's enjoy Cheryl's story. Welcome, Cheryl. I am very happy that you're here today because we had a previous conversation and it it was really exciting to know about your story. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to be here with you today. Yes. And so, Cheryl, you have a story that you want to share. Can you tell us why do you want to share a story? I want to share my story because I really want to give people hope about aging gracefully, that getting older is nothing to be afraid of. After you turn 50, it's the best part of your life. You can be fit, flexible, have vibrant health and vitality at every single stage of life. Yes, and and I love aging gracefully. That's true. Something that we all need to know. Absolutely. Yes. And so, Cheryl, when does your story start? All of our stories, I think they actually start from the very beginning, from the time we were born, but we don't even realize it. Mine really began on this journey when I was in my mid-30s. I was a very active young woman. I did ballet. I didn't start taking ballet classes until I was 19 or 20, which was very old, you know, for someone to start training in classical dance. But for some reason, it just really spoke to me. I started taking classes and I loved what it did for my body and my mind. So I was taking ballet classes several times a week. I also started taking Pilates classes. I was a downhill skier. So I was very, very active. I was also a member of the medical profession. I was a respiratory therapist. So I worked in the hospital in critical care, emergency room, you know, so it was a very high pressured type of job, but still on my days off, I had plenty of time to enjoy myself and do the things I love to do. Well, what started out as a very, a sensation of tightness and discomfort in my low back, you know, which I just tried to ignore it thinking, ah, it's going to go away. Well, it didn't. In a matter of a few short months, that discomfort in my low back spiraled out of control into a chronic pain syndrome where I had pain radiating across my lower back, down my buttocks, both hips, all the way down one leg, 
the back of my leg and even into my foot and my big toe. Wow. It was absolutely incapacitating. Being a good patient, so to speak, I did the right thing, went to the doctor, and I ended up on three different medications. They sent me, of course, to physical therapy. So I was taking all of the muscle relaxers, pain medication, and anti-inflammatories. I was doing all of the stretches and the exercises that the physical therapists were giving me. I went to the massage therapist uh, religiously because that was part of my physical therapy. And instead of getting better, I was getting progressively worse. It got to the point where I couldn't work full time anymore because my job was very demanding. So I had to cut way back on my hours instead of going to my ballet classes and my Pilates classes or going up to the mountains to ski. I was going to multiple doctor's appointments and PT appointments and I was getting incredibly depressed. And it wasn't until I did hit rock bottom. It was two and a half years later. I lived that life for two and a half years always doing the right thing, listening to what the medical professionals and experts were telling me so I could get better. I just kept spiraling down into this horrible circle or, or a spiral of pain, spasm. It was so depressing. I couldn't do anything until finally one of my doctors actually said to me, that I would never be able to do my grocery shopping and my laundry all in the same day because the arthritis in my spine was so severe, I would end up being bedridden. Wow. And so they did discover that it was arthritis. Well, that's what they said it was. That's what the official, and I'm you know using air quotes here, diagnosis was. Later on, I figured out that it really wasn't arthritis. And in the x-ray, they saw some, some changes, again, air quotes, degenerative changes in my spine. So of course, it was like, okay, that's arthritis, and that is what must be causing the pain. So when this woman told me that, I was just shocked. I said, well, you don't understand. I'm planning on going back to ballet class. And she laughed in my face and said, oh, no, you don't understand. You are a chronic pain patient. You will always be a chronic pain patient. You will never have the life that you had before. You will never have the life that you thought you were going to have and the life that you wanted. But don't worry. We're going to take care of you. <laughs> you just keep doing everything we say. And I'm going, something's wrong here. And then she recommended that I start applying for disability because I was going to need it. Wow. And I was 36 years old. Wow. And how do you feel? How you came out of that office? I do remember the level of devastation was so bad. It was almost as if somebody had hit me over the head. If you hit your head real hard, you know, it's like it's so disorienting and you're confused and nothing makes sense and you feel lightheaded and dizzy. And I drove home that way. And so when I got home, you know, I mean, I hit rock bottom for a couple of days. I mean, I could barely even get out of bed and get down the stairs. It was just like, my life is over. If this is what my prognosis is for the rest of my life. It was a few days later, and I had what I call a mental head-smacking moment, or some people call them an epiphany. And I realized, I don't have to live this way. It's up to me to figure out how to heal myself. Because obviously, not only is my medical team not doing it, they, I realized, were making me worse. And I'm sure that wasn't their intention, but just keeping me in that loop of, you're a chronic pain patient. 
you can't do this, you can't do that, you'll never go back to ballet class. They were really reinforcing the victim mentality and that I would never be able to be a strong, independent person again. I would always be um, dependent on them to try and take care of me and try and get me healthy, which didn't seem like that was one of the plans if I was already told to start applying for disability and that this was going to be the rest of my life. So I decided to take matters into my own hands. I fired my entire medical team, much to their distress, because they told me I was going to get hurt and I needed them, which, you know, that ship had already sailed. I stopped taking all of the medications And I started teaching myself how to move again, to move in a way where I was really paying attention to if I moved a certain way or I sat a certain way, what made my pain worse? Okay, what would relieve my pain? It was a very meticulous process and it did take me quite a few months. The only thing I added was uh, acupuncture. So all of the, I walked away from the Western medicine model and just embraced acupuncture for the first time in my life to help rewire my nervous system and try and help with some of the inflammation and the pain. In a matter of about eight months, I was pain-free and I was going back to ballet class in a very limited capacity. You know, I couldn't do an entire hour and a half ballet class, but I could do 20 minutes of bar as long as I did it in my own mindful way. And I would tell the teacher, just ignore me. I'm going to stand in the corner over here. So I continued that process. And like I said, I was completely pain-free. Cheryl, you hit rock bottom. How did you came out? I mean, you were for a few days, but what happened? You always have been a person that is finding a solution. How is it that you could come up with this idea of, okay, I'm going to file the team and then I'm going to do it myself. How did you come out with that? I, I think it was out of desperation because I don't think that before she told me that, I don't think I had enough confidence in myself to be able to figure it out. I mean, you always go to the experts, don't you? When you're not feeling well, when you're sick, when you're injured, when you're in pain, you don't look into yourself to be your own healer. You always go to the experts because they're the ones who supposedly know best. But what I realized in a moment of clarity, and maybe it's because I stopped taking the pain meds and the muscle relaxers, I don't know. But in that moment of clarity, I realized I had to take charge of my life and I did not like handing my authority over to somebody else to dictate to me how I was supposed to live my life. And I think that that just lit a fire inside of me that I probably have always had the fighting spirit. It's just, you know, as you go through life sometimes and bad things happen to you, you forget about the fighting spirit. You forget about your inner wisdom. And a lot of times we're told we have to go to other people and look outside ourselves for solutions to any problems that we're having. Yes, that's true. I am glad that you figured that out. I guess because you were a professional dancer, you will know, okay, I'm going to start moving and, and be more in tune with myself, that you have to be really open, you know, to listen to your inside voice yourself. Well, no, I think you're saying it very well, but you're right to listen to that inside voice. And I personally had shut that voice down for many, many years. So this was a new experience for me. I wasn't a professional dancer because I started so late in life, but I understood movement to a certain degree. But even my approach to ballet was trying, you know, kill it, you know, just, you know, put your head down and 
try and push through things. It was more my experience with Pilates that gave me that insight into looking at movement in a different way. I actually even had gone back to one of my Pilates instructors after I got that terrible prognosis and he hurt me even more. And it was like, aha, even told him if I do this position that he wanted me to do, that really hurts my back and that aggravates my pain. And he says, well, do it anyhow, and we'll just change the tension on the springs. And I'm going, okay, so he's not listening to me either. But I realized I understood that this was bothering me. So that's when I realized even more, it just reinforced the fact that I knew more than I realized about movement. So I had done enough Pilates that I would take the some of the mat exercises. It can be really grueling, but it can also be very therapeutic if you take even just one exercise and I would dissect it into little bits and pieces. And I would move in ways that was just very, very small and minimalistic rather than I need to do the full movement like I would do when I was taking Pilates classes or in ballet classes. So I really had to slow myself down and listen to myself as I moved very slowly, which is not my personality. Ah, okay. There you go. So how is your personality? My personality is just put your head down and just push right through everything. Of course, that doesn't work so well. <laughs> uh -huh. So you did have to change a lot. I did have to change. I had to change my mindset, which was a huge shift for me. Mindset is everything. I was so engaged and so married, actually, to my former belief system that I didn't want to change. And I didn't realize that I had to. I mean, I was fine, however I was. But once you start changing your mindset and loosening up the restrictions that you have around them and being more open to exploring new ideas, new thoughts, new ways of thinking and, and sensing and being more aware of yourself, magic begins to happen. So you change your mindset, which I agree that is super important. Do you see that fight between the old mindset and the new one that wanted to come in? Oh, yeah, boy. It was just a major battle. <laughs> Had been for a few years. They, they battled quite a bit together for about another 10 years until finally I had something else happen that was pretty traumatic. And again, just went tumbling down that rabbit hole of, you know, despair and chronic pain. And I was able to once again yank myself out. And then the mindset change was pretty much permanent. I will have to say that every now and again, that old mindset will try and creep up in my brain and knock on the door and say, hey, I'm still here. And I say, yeah, just go away and leave me alone. I'm fine. But how do you know which one is right? Because they're both kind of in you. How do you know which one is the, the right that you should listen to? That is an excellent question. And the only way I think I could answer it is through intuition. And I think especially as women, we have such a powerful sense of intuition and knowingness and inner wisdom that through society and life experiences, we're told, oh, don't listen, you're just making that up. Oh, that's not you know, real, or that really can't be true or whatever. So I just stopped listening to anybody else and started listening to myself. And if those two inner voices <laughs> were having a conversation and one pulling me in one direction and the other one pulling me in the other, I would just kind of sit there and be kind of like a referee and see which one won. That's a very good example because it's true. We're not our thoughts. So you are the observant. Well, that's fascinating that you put it that way, that you are the observer 
it's an interesting thing to try and take yourself away, almost like, I don't want to say outside of yourself, but just to kind of step back instead of being so internalized. Sometimes it's like, you know, this is the way I'm going to do it and there's no way I'm going to change. But to just step back and say, okay, wait a minute, how do I feel about this? What I like to do is take myself away from any external stimulation that's too much that might be swaying me one way or another. So I'll just go outside and sit in my yard. If it's too cold to go outside, because I do live in Colorado, if it's, you know, a snowy day, I might just bundle up and go for a walk. Or just go into a quiet room where there, you know, no husband, no dogs, no music, no radio, and just enjoy some quiet time. Not exactly meditation because I'm, I have ants in my pants. I'm somebody that just can't meditate. <laughs> it's, it's a problem, you know, but if I'm moving, if I'm going for a walk or if I'm sitting still and I have that observation of being outside and the sense of calm that being outdoors brings me, then I can go inside. So it's, my own way of meditation. Wow. It's not the traditional way. I heard different people through the podcast. At the end, meditation is just a tool. You just have to know how to not let your thoughts take over. And so whatever it takes, like some people tap, you go for walks, you know, some people meditate. The mind of somebody will be millions of thoughts. The mind of a monk will be like the thought come and they, they ignore it. They don't let that even start whatever works because it's just nothing fits one person is same as diets exercise absolutely we all have to find our own path in our own way yeah you know, i even had people tell me when I, I just jokingly say well i can't meditate and i've had people yes. say well then you're doing it wrong and i can teach you how to do it right and it's like okay stand back because there's no right way or wrong way of doing things when it's your own personal health your own personal journey of either healing or spirituality, you know, find your own way. If you need a little bit of guidance or you need a coach here and there, that's great. But remember, you're the one who is your own expert. Exactly, exactly. So Cheryl, we're going back. So you started to do all these and then what happened? Ugh. My life was good. It was really good. Okay, I got my master's degree in physical therapy. And I graduated just three months shy of my 40th birthday because PT was something I wanted to do. I just wanted to change careers. I had no idea it was going to be as grueling as it was. And once I graduated and I got into the workforce for PT, I realized I didn't like it. But wait a minute. You were, you were working in a hospital and then you got ill and then you got better and you decide, okay, I'm quitting my job, changing careers, no listening to anybody else. Well, so many changes. Exactly. Well, I was actually planning on trying to get into physical therapy school. I wanted a change in my career. If you know anything about respiratory therapy, it was uh, life and death. It was you were always on. There was everything was really slow. You're bored to tears, and all of a sudden, you've got three emergencies going on. You know, all over the hospital. It was time. I needed a change. It was too much life and death with the emphasis on the death part. So I thought that physical therapy would be perfect for me because, you know, as a dancer and a Pilates person, someone who's really interested in working with people who are more vested in their own health. And this was before I had my chronic pain syndrome. So I was actually taking classes to try and get into PT school. 
to do the prerequisites when this um, chronic injury happened or this chronic pain syndrome. Once I healed that pain, it was right after that that I got the letter, the notification that I was accepted into PT school. And getting accepted into PT school is, is it's quite difficult to do. For my program, there were only 60 positions for 600 applicants. Uh-huh, wow. So I was like, okay, I'm going to be a physical therapist. This is going to be great. I'll be able to help other people help myself along the way if I ever get hurt again. Well, that's not exactly what happened. And the field, working in the field at that time, I graduated in 96, it was horrible. It was a nightmare. And I absolutely hated it. Just hated it. I realized then why I didn't get better when I was a chronic pain patient, because you know, you have your diagnosis, you have your ICD-9 treatment codes, you have the protocol, you get so many sessions, um, hum, whatever the insurance company will allow you. As the PT, you're the one who's writing all the notes and the documentation, and your PT assistant and the aides are doing all the work and the interaction with the patients. It was just awful. I finally decided after working in the field for about two and a half years, it was another one of those epiphany, those mental head smacking moments when I was sitting in a gut-wrenchingly boring, horrible meeting. Oh, it was terrible. And all of a sudden a light bulb went off in my head and it was like, wait a minute, you can open up your own office. And so I did. I opened up my own alternative physical therapy office. It wasn't really a clinic. I didn't have patients. I had clients. I opened up my own office and I specialized in Pilates-based rehab and conditioning. So when people would come to me, they were in my own situation where they had been in pain, went to the PTs, maybe got a little bit better, but were still having issues. So I used all of the techniques that I used to heal myself and taught them to my clients And so I would tell them when they came in to see me, it was like, okay, I am not going to fix you. I'm going to teach you how to fix yourself. So I empowered them by giving them the tools of how to listen to themselves through their awareness, how to move in a way that was healthy and not destructive. And yeah, I had a thriving practice that way. Wow. And you enjoyed it very much. I loved it. Yes. Okay. Okay. Having ants in your pants, you're the kind of person who, okay, this is a good idea. Which one is the next one, right? Exactly. Exactly. Yes. The ants in the pants and my incomparable stubbornness has served me very well in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Stubbornness or um, being persistent. I don't know. Is that the same? Yeah, Yeah, I think so. But I take the persistence to uh, the level of an art form. Okay. All right. And so then what happened? So you were happy with this job? So I was 44 years old. Everything was going really well. I felt great. I looked great. My practice was thriving. And then I had the rug pulled out from underneath me. And what had happened was I just walked into a doctor's office for a routine check. And when I walked into his office, I was a healthy, vibrant 44-year-old woman. And when I walked out, I was a statistic. How so? Mm. He was a predator. Ah. He was a sexual predator. It was pretty awful. Uh, so I was already on this path of healing, exploring health and this wellness journey. And that just knocked me down into a horrible spiral of PTSD, especially as a medical professional. You know, I was shocked and horrified that this could happen. I wanted to make sure that I reported it. Any other woman who it happened to, it would help support them if they ever 
happened to be in his office and the same thing happened to them. And I know that I wasn't the first person it happened to, and I knew I wouldn't be the last, but I wanted to at least create a paper trail and have it on his record. So the next person that came in, the next woman who would complain, it was like, ah, see, there's a paper trail here. And I was confused that why didn't anybody complain before? And that way it would have protected me. So that was the first thing I was going to do is report him. And then, of course, you know, get some help for myself so I could move on with my life and it wouldn't impact me for the rest of my life. That's not exactly the way it happened. I understand why women do not report sexual assault because the way I was treated afterward was just as traumatic, maybe even more so as the actual event, because the first person I tried to talk to was my best and dearest friend in all the world. And she, of course, did not listen to me. I was shocked. I expected her to, you know, hold my hand and say, okay, this is what we're going to do. And, you know, I'll help you out here. And she just basically said, that can't possibly happen. You're making it up. She told me a lot of other horrible things too. We're not friends anymore. I can just tell you that. After that, I figured, well, I'll go to my next rock, which would be my husband. And the first thing when I started to tell him, he put his hands over his ears and he says, this is girl stuff. You need to go talk to Kathleen, who was my girlfriend. So it was obvious that there was something very wrong with me. I lost 10 pounds in two weeks. You know, women in ballet class were just like, oh, wow, look at you. You're really losing a lot of weight, which is kind of like, you know, in ballet class, it's a good thing, but I, not in that way. Then they started to try and counsel me for anorexia because a lot of them had, were recovered anorexics. And it's like, no, I don't have an eating disorder. I have a problem. I had this really horrible thing happen to me. And right away they'd say, no, that couldn't have happened. So I got enough signals that I was on my own. I had nobody to talk to. There wasn't anybody who was going to give me any help. I just tucked that experience away pasted a big fake smile on my face, pretended everything was fine and just went on with my life. But of course, you know, eventually stuff like that has a tendency of spewing out eventually. And it did. That's actually what launched me on my next incredible journey of studying martial arts. And, and so you never reported it? I finally did report it probably about a year and a half later. It took a year and a half. I had a complete meltdown. It was about 14 months after it happened, complete total meltdown. I finally went to seek help from a former client of mine that was a psychiatrist. And she and I had a good relationship. That was the first time I was able to tell anybody the entire story. The first time in almost a year and a half. First thing she goes, okay, you are going to report this. Report it to the, I think it's called the Medical Examiner's Board of Colorado. I just looked at her and I said, is it going to make any difference? And she hesitated just long enough for me to know what the answer was. But then she said, no, but it will appeal to your sense of justice and taking action and doing mm -hmm. something. So I did. Exactly. That, that's, that's true. Sometimes you think it won't make a difference. So I'm glad you reported it. We think that a lot of times nothing's going to happen. It's not going to make any difference, but it really does. And it can make a difference. And just taking that action, number one, makes you feel better that, okay, at least, you know, it's out there. And I, I stood up for myself. I found my voice and I was able to, to report this, but it's amazing how those things will add up. You have to have like a pattern, but once that pattern is established, then action can be taken. Yes. And so you finally went and reported it. You, you felt a bit better, but you still had the trauma. 
I still had the trauma. Yeah. And I, I didn't feel much better. And I will say, even if you think that, you know, you've had a minor infraction or something happen and that little voice in your head says, you know, I want to report it, but it's not going to make a difference. You might be really surprised because of course the doctor did not lose his license. I really didn't even expect to hear back from the medical examiner's board, but it took them about six months. And I did get a letter that said he did get reprimanded for unprofessional conduct. And, you know, I'm rolling my eyes going, oh, look at what I got and look what he got, you know, for doing it. It hardly seems fair. Reading the letter and what they nailed him on for unprofessional conduct was a billing error that he overcharged my insurance company. Love your face. Love those eyes. Yes, that's what they got him on. And I'm looking at that going, oh my gosh, I can't believe this. And then all of a sudden, another one of those mental head smacking moments, it was like, oh my gosh, this is insurance fraud. So what I did is I made several copies of the letter. I called his office to get a list of all the insurance companies he was a provider with. And I sent a copy of the letter as well as a cover letter going, you might want to audit his charts. Basically, it was fraudulent billing. I know that I, I tore his office into chaos for a long, long time, him having to answer a lot of questions. It just made me feel better. Cheryl, there is no way that people can make comments online. I would still recommend going to the professional licensing board and file a formal complaint as well. Not a good experience at all. I'm sorry that you went through that. Thank you. Thank you. But it did turn out okay. I'm a completely different person because of it. And I think I'm a better person because of it, because of where it took me. It was a long time, but I managed to really find my own way again. Yes. And, you know, sometimes we have these bad experiences that make us better person, but we still yeah. think... yeah. Yeah, why, right? So I guess that that's your mindset is fighting one with the other, the logical one and the one that's maybe, I don't know how we call it, the victim, the, the one that says it's not fair. One thing I did find out about myself, I really make a poor victim. Everybody wanted to put me again in that victim box. People finally started believing me. Oh, you're always going to be dealing with the rest of your life. And oh, you're going to have these health issues because of it. And because of trauma, women always get fibromyalgia. You're going to have to deal with that. And it's like, wait a minute. Once again, somebody else is making these predictions and saying these terrible prognoses for me. And it's like, what about what I think and what how I feel about myself? In the meantime, it was right after I was triggered and I really went sliding down the rabbit hole. I had found a new acupuncturist. I went to this guy, it was probably four months after I was traumatized. And of course, at that point, I was pretending nothing happened and I was absolutely fine. This guy had his clinic right next door to his martial arts school. First time he put needles in my legs, he got a faraway look on his face and he said, you know, with your legs and my coaching, I could teach you how to kill with these things. And I thought, okay, this man's crazy. Who thinks like this? let alone actually says it out loud. And I said, no, thanks. I'm, I'll save my killer legs for ballet class. <laughs> and he kept trying to get me to train with him. Take some classes. You'll love it. It'll be fun. You'll be good. And I'm like, no. And about a year later, when I really just hit the skids and went sliding down the rabbit hole, that's when I told him my story, what had happened. And then his campaign to get me on the mat went into high gear. It still took him another two years to get me to train with him. And I just kept saying no, because I didn't understand how hanging around a smelly dojo with a bunch of sweaty men was going to make me feel better. And he kept saying, you don't understand. There's an incredible power of healing in the martial arts. And I thought, no. 
finally, you know, took three years and I said, all right, I will take a few classes just to prove to you how much I'm going to hate it. And then I'm going to quit. (laughs) (laughs) I didn't hate it. How was it to learn something completely new? I guess it's a bit of ballet too, because you have to go slow and you have to be mindful. Yes, you have to be mindful. It was terrifying and exhilarating all at the same time. Absolutely terrifying because Mark, my sensei, told me, oh, don't you worry. There'll be plenty of women in class. I was really worried about that. No, no, there's plenty of women. And I have plenty of even upper ranking women that be happy to take you under their wing and teach you the art of the ninja, because that's what I study. It's called Nimpo Taijutsu, the art of the ninja. And I thought, okay, the first day I showed up for class, not only was I the only woman in class, I was the only girl within like a 10 mile radius. I was surrounded by men. The black belts would teach me and they would try and show me some things. And it was absolutely terrifying. I was so far out of my element and so far out of my comfort zone. But once class was over and I was driving home, I giggled the whole way home. And I hadn't giggled in a long time. I didn't know what was going on, but there was something inside of me that I can't even to this day explain because I was still going through the throes of, you know, PTSD and all of that stuff. But for that one little frame of time, I felt different. I didn't feel like this terrified little person, even though I was, you know, with all these guys. I didn't feel like I was flittering around the room, you know, like in ballet class, this, you know, pretty little ballerina. I just felt like I was moving in a way that was so organic and visceral and natural and just organic. It was just something that is so hard to explain. I went back to class. You know, I was only going once or twice a week. I was so shocked at the end of that first month that I was writing a check for the next month tuition because I was only in it. I was only going to take a few classes. And before I knew it, three months had gone by and I was testing for my yellow belt, although reluctantly. Three months later, I tested for my second degree yellow belt. And then all of a sudden, I started slowly climbing up the ranks. I thought I was going to hate it, but I fell in love with the art. I fell in love with the training and I really fell in love with the sense of empowerment that I got from training. But do you think it's because you did ballet because of your legs? I mean, <laughs> you, you had a talent and you suddenly learned really quickly. Having ants in your pants, like you said, it is a very slow thing. How, how did that work? I'm, I'm curious about that. A lot of people would say, oh, well, you're a dancer. And so it must have been very natural for you. But ballet is so different from martial arts because ballet is kind of ethereal. You're this magical creature and you're doing movements that are completely unnatural. If you've ever done ballet or seen ballet, it's like, you know, how can a human body move like that and look serene at the same time? Because it's pretty painful sometimes too, especially on point. But everything in ballet is long and extended. The knees are straight, the toes are pointed, extending your back. And then I'd go to martial arts because I would take a ballet class first, then I'd go to my martial arts class. Bend your knees, bend your elbows, use your wrists, you get down lower, flex your feet. And I'm going, oh, that's just not pretty. How am I going to do that? And I don't understand why you want me to do this, you know, because it just doesn't look (laughs) pretty. So it wasn't because I was a ballet dancer. It was just because I have a very strong sense of self-preservation. I was a very good student only because I wanted to be able to live to see another day. 
I'm working with these guys. And I mean, they were very gentle at first. But once I started climbing the ranks, you know, it was game on. But, you know, they're throwing punches and kicks. They're throwing you to the ground. They're pinning you. And you have to figure out how to get out of these pins and and out of the wrist grabs and the chokes. I mean, all of these things that they're doing. So that's why I would really pay very close attention. And then once I started getting higher in the ranks, I started doing a few privates with my sensei. Couldn't have climbed the ranks like I did without their help. It was a slow process. My body was changing and my brain was changing as well, as well as my mindset, my self-image, everything was changing. Do you think that the type of uh, martial arts was also the appropriate for you? Absolutely. The universe, God was watching over me and put me in the right place at the right time with the right people because I don't think any other art would have done it. The art of the ninja, there's something about the art of the ninja. It is so seductive and it just, the way it draws you in, it's just amazing. It's, it's also very sneaky. And that is part of, I have a little bit of a sneaky streak in my personality too. And that really appealed to me. Huh, interesting. Interesting. So you became a black belt ninja. I did. I started my martial arts training at the tender young age of 47. And 10 years later, I became my teacher's first female black belt in 20 years of teaching. Oh, wow. He had never had a woman achieve such a high rank. And since then, he's only had one other woman. I will be 66 in September. I am still training three, sometimes four times a week and teaching other people. It's just a lot of fun. Wow, how fun. You have a special name like the Ninja Turtles? <laughs> no, but there is something that the, the guys, once I started to get, I was there about maybe three years or so and you know climbing the ranks and the men would walk by me and they would whisper a certain word and they would say, Kunichi. And I'm like, what? And they would say it again. So it's either Kunichi or Kunichi, something like that. And it was basically the name for the female warrior. Oh, wow. Female, like the Japanese warrior. Because in the Japanese culture, in the Japanese legend, that the women warriors were far more feared than the men. Because the women were able to infiltrate and get behind enemy lines because they looked, they were soft They were pretty. They looked harmless. That was kind of like a persona that really resonated with me, let's just say. And so basically, I, I, you know, I just would always laugh it off. But even at that time, I never thought I would ever be a black belt. Do you think, Cheryl, that you had a talent too? I don't think so. I really don't think I did have a talent. I think it was the patience and perseverance, which is part of our traits of the ninja is patience and perseverance, you know, because it was incredibly frustrating. The movement patterns were so different. And a lot of times I would get beaten up pretty badly, not just physically, but emotionally and mentally. I do have a book that just went out. And the title of the book is The Reluctant Ninja, How a Middle-Aged Princess Became a Warrior Queen. It's my second book. It was a harder one to write when I was first started writing it. And I'm sitting down here in my girl cave and I'm on my computer and I was laughing so hard, tears were coming down my eyes because some of the things that happened were so funny and just so ridiculous. And, you know, it just, I'd go through all that all over again. And then two days later, I'd be typing something and telling another story and then I'd get all, hey, wait a minute. And I'd get all mad again and everything. So I went through that roller coaster ride, but it, it chronicles my journey from that terrified traumatized 
timid, beaten, and broken woman to finally saying, okay, I will give this a try. And then taking that emotional roller coaster up and down, going through the ranks, getting to a certain level, having a, you know, getting the rug pulled out from underneath me again, getting back up on my feet and going through another cycle of the ups and the downs. So it was not just a nice smooth trajectory up to the black belt. There was a lot that went into it. It makes for an interesting story. And even sometimes now I look at the book and I look at the story and I look at my belts hanging on the wall and I'm going, did that really happen to me? <laughs> I think it's wonderful that you wrote that book, The Reluctant Ninja, because we always hear it wasn't good. And now I achieve all these. The process for me is the most important one because it wasn't that easy. It wasn't that from A, you went to B and that's it. It is hard work and perseverance and insisting and disciplines. Oh, thank you. So what about the other book that you wrote? Forever Fit and Flexible, Feeling Fabulous at 50 and Beyond. That was published in June of 2016. And it's still doing pretty well. I mean, it won two awards. It was easier to write because it wasn't quite as personal. I have my own personal story in there, as well as clients that I've worked with. And in the book, I also have a lot of the techniques that I use to heal myself from my own chronic pain syndrome. And I have a couple of, I call them movement lessons. They're not exercises. So it uh, describes how to change your mindset, how to improve and increase your awareness to be able to pay attention to your body and the sensations going through it. I also talk about building a strong foundation, which is posture, core strength, the, to gain the flexibility, the balance. And I give simple tips on how to achieve them rather than, oh, go to the gym three times a week and do all these silly exercises. I mean, if that makes you feel good, that's great. But this is more of being able to target what movements and movement patterns work for you and to do it in a way to keep your joints healthy and flexible, well lubricated and the muscles working. It's very practical fitness over 50. Yes, it sounds so. Cheryl, going back to the time where, yes, you started to do the ninja lessons. What happened after that? Is that when you decided, okay, now I'm going to be a writer? Oh, yes. I started writing my first book. I think it was in 2000. It took me two and a half years to write it. So it must have been around 2014. I have four sisters and my youngest sister kept saying, you should write a book someday. You should write a book. I think you should write a book. I think you should write it now. And I'm like, Well, if you think it's such a great idea, why don't you write the book? And she said, no, you're a good writer. She says, you write well and you're a good storyteller because I had a blog. She says, I think you should write a book about our family. My parents had passed away just a few years earlier, the way we were raised. And my dad was an Eastern European immigrant. And so we do have some good stories. And I thought I started writing it. And then I thought, wait a minute. If I'm going to spend this much time and energy writing a book, I ought to write about something that makes me an expert in my field, you know, something that can help promote my career. So that's why I just changed gears and wrote the book on um, Forever Fit and Flexible. And I never really expected to become an author. You know, it's like, okay, one book. But I always knew in the back of my mind, I was going to write a book about the reluctant ninja. 
And even as a brand new martial arts student, and we'd have some really stupid things happen at the dojo, and I would just roll my eyes and go, I'm going to write a book someday. So that's basically launched my career as an author, and I've got two or three more books that I'm working on. I noticed that you have a few angels that have pushed you to do things like your sister, you should write a book, you should write a book so many times. And then your sensei telling you with those legs, you should be a ninja. <laughs> Anybody else that has insisted on something that you try to dismiss? Oh my goodness. I'm sure there are a lot more. I have been dragged kicking and screaming into almost every single thing that I do. I never go willingly, but once I do, I just completely and totally embrace it. Uh, yeah, there's been a lot more along the way. But that helps a lot, I think, that when you see that people believe in you, you feel, well, somebody believe in me and maybe I should try. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And then when you're stumbling and falling all over the place, it's like, I don't think this was a good idea. After all, sometimes that same person can give you just a little bit of a push in the right direction. Exactly. Okay. So what else? I also have a podcast. Oh, all right. What is your podcast about? Well, the title is The Femininja Project. It is loosely based on my experience as a martial artist. It's about overcoming obstacles. It's about personal empowerment standing your ground, finding your voice, alternative health and healing, living well and looking good. And that's basically my mission to be able to share hope. Because I think the more that we share our stories and talk to one another, we make the world a better place. That's true. That's true. I, I found that too, people sharing their stories, you, you know that you're not alone. And all the people to listen to and learn, oh, this happened to the person. Even if you get one thing out of whatever you listen to, it is always something that you didn't have. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And that's why I think that we're seeing so many more podcasts out there and a lot more people talking about, again, messages of hope, healing, mental health, physical health, all kinds of things. And just time to tell our stories. Are you still a physiotherapist? I'll do work with some people online, and it's mostly, of course, since I'm not touching them physically, I help them move better and, and their movement patterns and coach them through that. And I also am teaching some workshops and classes here in town now. I teach a weekly movement class. I've taught a couple of workshops on self-defense for women. That sounds wonderful. What other things you do that you haven't told us yet? Yeah, so I do pole dancing. I started at 58. So I teach at the pole studio and I take classes at the pole studio. So you started pole dancing at 58. How often do you train? Between one and three times a week. And I am go going to be doing a competition. I did a competition three years ago. I think I'm going to do it again. You do seem to have a talent for movement. I try to do pole dancing several times and I get dizzy going around the pole. I give up easily because I don't see improvement but you seem to have a talent. No, it took me probably three or four years of pole dancing to be able to invert, go upside down. No, things don't come easily to me. I am so stubborn, I just don't give up. Well, that is a talent within itself. <laughs> thank you. All right, thank you, Cheryl. It was, was wonderful to hear your story. I'm super, super excited just to, to hear you. And maybe I'm going to try to be an India. I don't know. <laughs> I believe that anybody could be an India. Thank you for having me on the show. Thank you for hosting such a beautiful podcast and letting everybody share their story. Thank you so much, Cheryl. I hope you enjoyed it, today's episode. I am Daniela, and you were listening to Because Everyone Has a Story. Please take five seconds right now and think of somebody in your life that may enjoy what you just heard or someone that has a story to be shared and preserved. 
When you think of that person, shoot them a text with the link of this podcast. This would allow the ordinary magic to go further. Join me next time for another story conversation. Thank you for listening. Hasta pronto.